0: If you have your Bibles with you, could you please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 7. We are going to start um, with verse 51 today and finish the chapter. I have really enjoyed the book of Acts. Um, I think it's kind of neat because I have read before that it was a sequel to the book of Luke, but you can really see how um, God is carrying over the story from the gospel into the New Testament and the early church through the book of Acts. And Stephen has just um, done a great job for us of setting the scene and of of comparing, or not comparing, but connecting the Old Testament with the New, because he just used the Old Testament to hopefully show the people of Israel where they stood. Because they often would say, we are Moses' disciples. But Stephen basically said, you know, you're not really Moses' disciples, because if you were, then you would listen to the message that I'm preaching, because Moses... Testified of Jesus and we've talked about that at more length previously so I'm not going to go back through that and do a full review but only to say this that um, the people of that day the religious leaders didn't realize they were basically replicating every single thing attitude wise that the people of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness were doing. And um, I wanted to say something by way of introduction because my dad mentioned this. My dad and I talk a lot about um, the voice of the martyrs. My dad has a real heart for the persecuted church for a while. At one of our previous churches, we were doing a monthly prayer meeting where we would get together as a church family, and we would pray through the requests that we got every week from the ministry, the voice of the martyrs. So this has been a a very big thing on my dad's heart and consequently on mine as well, because we think of persecution in America as being something that happened way back in the Bible times. But there are more people dying for the sake of the gospel today than ever before, And it's for one particular reason. It's because they won't keep their mouth shut. You know, if they just lived a quiet and peaceable life and never spoke a word about the gospel, they could be alive. But you'll notice the thing that Stephen couldn't do and the thing that people that truly love the Lord and truly know what the Lord has done in their lives can't do is keep their mouth shut. The psalmist said it this way, the Lord has put a new song in my heart. And when you have a song in your heart, you can't help but sing. And I'm known by many people at school as someone that sings in the hallways because I just love to sing. And and the theme of my song is often Jesus because he is the theme of my life song. I actually just read an allegory uh, called The Singer by Calvin Miller, I recommend it. Basically talking about how God, um, picturing God as a singer who brings the life song to the people and I do think that's an apt analogy but I wanted to share, by way of introduction, a verse that my dad pointed out from Revelation chapter 1. And you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to share it with you. But in, in Revelation chapter 1, um, John is talking about his time on the Isle of uh, or why he is on the Isle of Patmos where he's writing <coughs> excuse me. And he says this Why am I on Revelation fifteen? I'm way alright. I am a little bit out of place here, so I am just going to make sure that I get to the right chapter. But it says in Revelation Chapter one, verse. Uh, let me find it here. Oh. Let me see here. By my hands, jar? I'm finding. Verse it. Nine. Verse 9, I believe. I believe that's right. Okay. Verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1. I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so, you think about the fact that John... And tradition tells us that he was boiled in oil and that didn't kill him. So they're like, well, if we can't kill him, we might as well exile him so that he can't preach the word of God. And we don't really know if he had much contact with other people on Patmos. But we do know that God was still with him, that God talked to him, and that he brought the book of Revelation out of that experience for John. But looking at our current message, um, let's look at the first few verses here. First of all, I titled today's sermon, Stephen's Sermon, the Response. Because we've had Stephen lay out his sermon, we've had him lay out the truth, and now there's going to be a response to that sermon. And the first point, my three points, if you're keeping notes, is harsh rebuke. Number two is heated response. Number three is humble request. So those three simple points harsh rebuke, heated response, humble request. So harsh rebuke is the first point. Acts seven, fifty one to fifty three. You stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, and they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have now been betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it? So, basically, Stephen is saying, okay... So you claim to follow the law, but you're not even following the law that God put forth to you, and you have a hardened and a stiff neck. Remember when Jesus was in his earthly ministry, he said this about the religious leaders. He said, you put burdens on the shoulders of the people that you serve that are so great that even you can't do them. And yet you have this expectation that they will somehow be able to fulfill that which you want them to fulfill. And then he basically talks about how all through the Old Testament um, you have prophets that are constantly being um, berated or mistreated or either killed or they at least people wanted them to be killed. And if you remember... Elijah, he he was he ran away from Queen Jezebel because she wanted to kill him and he just wanted to die because he felt like he was the only one and God told him, Hey, I have four hundred men hidden that have not bowed the knee to Baal, and you're not alone. And he gave him a place to rest and he nourished him with food and he prepared him for his next mission. But the point being that God knew where Elijah's weakness was, and he met him there. But all through the Old Testament, uh, these persecutions had occurred. And then he said that you have uh, persecuted them and, and slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you are now been betrayers and murderers. Think about this. Isaiah said, a sign shall be given, a virgin shall conceive and bear a sign. And everything that the prophet said, Jesus was, and yet as he stood before them, they missed who he was. And we think about that in some ways, and we think how... How can that be? How could they have missed it? But I was discussing with some brothers between the meetings during break about how when you look at creation, when you look at the way that giraffes are made, for instance, um, you can only look and say the complex things that have to happen for a giraffe to survive. The very act of lowering their neck to eat their food would cause them to die from lack of blood pressure if it was not for specific ingenuity of the creator God. And yet some people look at that and they say, it just happened by chance. Giraffes have a a neck so long because it just happened by chance that giraffes came out of the Big Bang. Or bees. Bees are not anatomically... Supposed to be able to fly, and yet they do. Why? Because our wonderful Creator decided that the world needed bees. And He created them. And He created them to make honey so that we could enjoy that. And the Proverbs even say, Take some honey for it is good. But then they also give the caveat, Do not take too much lest you vomit. So, God's things are done decently and in order. And I don't have this passage in my notes, but I was noticing it in my... um, in the cross-references in my Bible. So I wonder if we might turn to Exodus chapter 32. Because Exodus chapter 32 will give us a little bit of an example of why Stephen calls them stiff-necked. And I need to look at the passage a second so I can tell what verses to read. So I'm just going to read it myself. So Exodus chapter 32 will be our first cross-reference of the day. Um, You know that the children of Israel put God... um, You know, they really tested God's patience... On numerous occasions. So when, when God says, I'm slow to anger and abounding in mercy, we can definitely see that in the story of the children of Israel. And let's look at verses 9 through 14 of Exodus 32. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and that I, and I will make of thee a great nation. Now at this point, Moses could have totally agreed and said, "That sounds like a good plan to me." But he doesn't. It says and Moses besought the Lord his God, and said, "Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt?" out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and say unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and all this land which I have spoken of, of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he had thought to do unto his people. Now, I know the Lord knows everything, so I I have a hard time understanding exactly what this passage means. Because I, I know that the Lord ultimately was not going to destroy his people. But I find it interesting that Moses... In his conversation with God, he appeals to him to save the people. And what does he appeal to him? By the very nature of God. What does Paul say in the New Testament? According, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, hath he saved us. The only thing Moses could do was appeal to God's righteous character and say, you made a promise to our forefathers that you would preserve them a nation. So based on that promise, don't let the Egyptians be right. Don't let the Egyptians mock you. Be faithful to the children of Israel. Now, again, I don't think that God needed Moses to say that. But I think it's a significant passage. When Moses is beseeching the God of heaven on behalf of the people. I also think it's interesting because the people thought that they were being faithful. The people that Stephen was dealing with thought they were being faithful to the things that God had told them. And yet, Stephen's saying, you are stubborn and stubborn people just like your forefathers. And they, they could have been wiped out for their stubbornness. The people that rejected God. God's will for them to go into the promised land wandered 40 years until they all died. And then their children possessed the land because God doesn't mess around. You know, God is a God of mercy, but you only understand God's mercy if you understand God's judgment and you realize what you've been saved from. The reality is, for Stephen, he realized that. For Stephen, he knew the only way he could be standing before them that day was through the power of Jesus Christ. I saw one translation of the the verse of of oh, Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit. It says being completely full in his entire being of the Holy Spirit. You know, we... We talked about, we, we sang the song Channels Only, and it was so appropriate because what does that song say? It says, emptied that thou shouldest fill me. We had to be emptied of ourselves in order to be filled by the one who can use us. Um, so... Stephen is talking to the persecutors of Jesus. They had just crucified Jesus. We don't know how a long a time period really passed, but a few weeks, a few years, we don't know. But they knew that they had crucified Jesus. And Stephen's saying, you have the same vitriol as your forefathers who slew the prophets, only you slew the righteous one, the just one. And you were what you were supposedly waiting for him. See, see, these leaders, they had a responsibility to know most of the Old Testament backwards and forwards. That's why I always tell people in the jail, and, and when I speak at school, I say, you can know the word of God as in the Bible, but if you don't know the word made flesh, then the Bible doesn't do any good for you. I know I've told this story before, but it, it still resonates with me, and I'll never forget it. I heard the story about this scribe that his sole job was to constantly uh, write down and retranscribe the Book of Psalms. He did it day in and day out. This is fairly modern. I think it was in the in the nineties when the person telling the story uh, talked about it. And he said, "When you read the Psalms, you, mu- you must get a really up close and personal look at who God is, and since there's and since there's many prophecies of the Messiah, you must know who Jesus is. And the scribe looked at him and said, "I'm an atheist. These words are are sound good, but they mean nothing to me. And I." I remember one psalm, one I believe it says, I desire your words more than my necessary food. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of desire I want to have for the word of God. Let's look by way of cross reference at Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Talking about persecution, talking about what Stephen is going through here, because the very the very reason that he has dragged before the Sanhedrin to give this address is that he's been falsely accused, as we already have said. If somebody gets to Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, you may read it for us. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil false, uh, against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad your reward in heaven. The so day, the prophets you. And remember also that Jesus said, if the world hated you, remember what? They hate you because they hated me first. So this is not something new to Stephen. He he just went through this whole history of the Old Testament. And now he's saying, you, you say that you revere the Old Testament, but you don't realize where the Old Testament was pointing. And you killed, as Peter said, the Prince of Life. So, what are you going to do? Let's look at a brief um, little uh, thing I found about criticism. It says... Criticism is always difficult to accept, but if we receive it with humility and a desire to improve our character, it can be very helpful. Only a fool does not profit when he is rebuked for his mistakes. Several years ago, I read a helpful article on this subject. It stated that when we are criticized, we ought to ask ourselves whether the criticism contains any truth. If it does, we should learn from it, even... If it does, we should learn for it even when it is not given with the right motivation and in the right spirit. The article then offered these four suggestions. One, commit the matter instantly to God, asking Him to remove all resentment or criticism on your part and teach you the needed lesson. Two, remember that we are all great sinners and the one who has criticized us does not know the worst about us. Not begin to know the worst about us. Three, if you have made a mistake or committed a sin, humbly and frankly, confess it to God and to anyone you may have injured. Four, be willing to learn afresh that you are not infallible and that you have a need of God's grace and wisdom every moment of the day to keep on the straight path. When we are criticized, criticized let us accept what it is true and act upon it, thereby becoming a stronger person. He who profits from rebuke is wise. And the source is unknown. But it reminds me of David. Remember when, I think it was a Abishag, started throwing stones at him, and, and someone, one of his men said, I'll, I'll cut off his head. I'll avenge you, king. And he said, let him alone. For it could be possible that God sent him to torment. Imagine having that humility and that thought process that even your tormentors could be allowed by God. Sadly, that's not what we see as we continue reading. The humility, I mean. As we continue reading this passage, we don't see a humble response. It says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked steadfastly up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then, he cried out with a loud, then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city. And stone him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Now, look at this with me. It says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Where do you remember that phrase? Anybody remember where that phrase has already been in Acts? Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost and says the people were cut to the heart. And what did they do because they were cut to the heart? They said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent therefore and be baptized. So there was no need for an altar call on the day of Pentecost because the people who were there were cut to the heart to the point where they asked the question, what do I need to do to be saved? Another similar situation was the Philippian jailer. He was going to kill himself because the prison had gone wide open after Paul and Silas were singing at midnight. No, I don't really want to go to jail, but what do I need to be there? In a sense, to see them singing in the stocks and to experience that earthquake and see those Those prison bars go wide open and then the Philippian jailer comes in and he's going to kill himself and Paul says, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Isn't that amazing? That every single one of them stayed where they were by God's power. It wasn't just Paul and Silas that were there. It was every single one. Now, I don't know if it was because they had a respect for Paul I don't know if it was because they had heard him singing and they felt his confidence. But Paul says, We're all here. Don't kill yourself. And he pulled Paul and Silas out of the jail and he cleaned their wounds and he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Again, no altar call. But the power of God had communicated to them. That they needed to be saved, and that Paul knew how that could be happening. And Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But in this case, the cut to the heart thing. Back to the animal example that I was that I was talking about earlier. Sometimes we were talking about how science some people say if you study science more, you you go away from God. Or, and, and we were talking about how if you really study science with an open heart, it brings you closer to God because you see the wonder of the creator God. And, and sometimes we wonder how science can draw people away from God. But the point is, if your hearts are hard, nothing will draw you to God. In the book, in in the story of Moses, it says that Pharaoh hardened His heart. But then it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, so he took the hard heart of Pharaoh and he made it even harder. Because that's where it was. It was hard. It was against the things of God. And so it is with the people that walked alongside Jesus and hated him and didn't realize who he was. Because when you encountered Jesus, one of two things had to happen. Either you drew further away from God because you were stiff necked and you refused to see him. Or you drew closer to God. Like the blind man who said, tell me who the Son of God is that I may believe on him. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. And he fell down on his knees and worshipped him. Those are the two responses that we can have. And these people who were cut to the heart, what does it say? They gnashed on him with their teeth. Where did Jesus say there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth? Hell. They're getting good practice for hell. Is basically what is being said here. But then it it says, Stephen, he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. We talk a lot about Jesus being on the right hand of God. There are other passages that talk about it. But this is a clear story of Stephen seeing it. And Jesus isn't just sitting on the right hand of God. He's standing. Why is he standing? I think it's because he's getting ready to say to Stephen when he enters heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your rest. And then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. Can you imagine being so annoyed with what someone is saying? So annoyed with the truth that you stop your ears and you say, I don't want to hear anymore can't hear any of it anymore. I feel like that's what the world often does with abortion. Because we often say, well, it's not a baby or it's not anybody's business what I do with my body. Women say that all the time. But all you have to do is look at ultrasounds and you know that that baby is not a part of a woman's body. Baby has a heartbeat. At a very early stage, the baby has fingers and toes. If the baby was part of your body, then you wouldn't need to have it removed. But yet, the, the people that are pro-abortion will fight tooth and nail to make sure that women don't get to see ultrasounds. Because statistically, there are statistics that say that 90% of women, and it's probably higher than that, because I can't imagine watching a moving baby and choosing abortion, but the 90% of women will choose life if they see their baby on an ultrasound image. But we don't want to show it to them because... They might choose life, and then that would be horrible. Because it's not really about choice, it's about control. And that's where we have this situation here. They don't want to hear the truth. They stop their ears to it. Because, you know, if I believe in a creator, back to the creation example, if I believe in a creator, then I have to intrinsically believe that the creator has something... To say about the way I live my life, and if I don't want anybody to say what I what I do with my life, what more convenient way to deal with that is than to say there's no creator? If I say there's creator, and I'm a created being, then by extension I have to be responsible to that creator. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. and cast him out of the city, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the young man's feet, whose name was Saul. Saul, who became Paul, will repeat this story. Um, I'm not exactly sure where it is but he talks about in Acts chapter 22 when he's giving his testimony he said, I persecuted the way unto death binding and delivering into prisons both men and women And then he talks about his receiving of letters so that he could persecute the people. And I just think about how that must have been for Saul to remember that. You can try to forget something like that, but you don't really. But I'm pretty sure that was one of his big motivations behind His statement in Philippians chapter 3, forgetting those things which are behind. I press on toward the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Anger often is not a good emotion. In James it says, the wrath of God worketh or the wrath man, work not the righteousness of God. Could we look at Luke 12, 11 and 12? If we would. Luke 12, 11 and 12. Somebody gets there, if they could show it to him. If they can read it to us. That would be awesome. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? <laughs> What's that? When you are brought before the synagogue, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. I want you to notice with me again, looking back at this passage really quickly. It says, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God. And then he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. He could have easily said nothing, but he says the words that God gave him to say because he was full of the Holy Spirit. In the spring of 1894, the Baltimore Orioles came to Boston to play a routine baseball game. But what happened that day was anything but routine. The Orioles' John McGraw got into a fight with the Boston third baseman. Within minutes, all the players from both teams had joined in the brawl. The warfare quickly spread to the grandstands. Among the fans, the conflict went from bad to worse. Someone set fire to the stands, and the entire ballpark burned to the ground. Not only that, but the fire spread to 107 other Boston buildings as well. Can you imagine? That's why the Bible talks about in James the power of the tongue. And how the tongue can be a raging fire. Because those people that were there in Boston that day at that stadium, it went from a on-the-field brawl to a fan brawl to the loss of 107 buildings. Anger is hard to control once it's let loose. I'm sure some of these people, well, I would like to think, I guess I'm not 100% sure, but I'm wondering if some of these people, after they went through their rage, after their rage had seized through them, whether there was a little bit of regret at least that they had carried Stephen out and stoned him. There was no trial, there was no, um, there was no uh, sentence passed. He was just carried out because of the anger they felt toward him for speaking the truth. And this is one of the struggles that I have in our culture today, is that often preaching the truth is characterized as hate. If I tell you a truth that you do not appreciate, it's because I love you. If your house was on fire, would you want me to tell you your house was on fire or just let you live in the fire until you die? Because there is a hereafter, there is a hell where the fire dieth not, where the worm dieth. You know, it's like the burning bush in the Old Testament. It burns, but it doesn't burn up. There will be no relief. The only relief is heaven through Jesus Christ. So, then, finally, a humble request. You would think that Stephen would just not say anything more, maybe take his stone quietly, and Just move on to heaven, but he doesn't. Let's look at Acts seven fifty-nine to sixty. Acts seven fifty-nine to sixty, finishing the chapter, and they stone Stephen, calling upon God. And they stone Stephen calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As he's being stoned, he says, receive my spirit. Who said that? Who is he emulating? His master. Jesus said on the cross, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. In 1 Peter, it says that he committed himself to the one who judged righteously. Imagine, even after that time on the cross where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He still knew that the place to commit him, his spirit was to God alone. And uh, that's the place for us to commit our spirit to. In verse 60, it says, And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, saying, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Again, emulating his master who said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I'm not sure if he was thinking about it at that time, but perhaps after Saul's conversion to Paul, he thought of these words. And he thought of how God once again answered that prayer. Because when he when Jesus was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And God answered that prayer because immediately or shortly after Jesus died, the centurion said, Surely this was the Son of God. And I hope with all my heart that someone came and shared with him the rest of the gospel. And shared with him that Jesus didn't say that, that he rose again the third day. I kind of wonder if maybe it was Cornelius that told him the end of the story. Because when the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles, on Cornelius, Peter knew that God was not a respecter of persons. So whether or not Paul had any stirrings that what he did was wrong, which we don't, I don't think so, because he he still was breathing out threats in chapter eight. We know that the request that Stephen made, God would honor in a big way in chapter nine. Sometimes we plant a seed and we never hope. We never think that we will see results. Remember, and I'll close with this story. I was in discipleship at Potter's House. and I had a really rough year and there was one really particularly rough student who never seemed to pay attention. Didn't seem to be getting much out of it. And then the next school year when I came back to do more discipleship, I was handed a note that apparently was given to one of the teachers on the last day of school the previous year. And there was a note from that young man saying that my time as a discipleship leader had a profound impact. So I sat there thinking I wasn't making any sort of impact and God had other plans. But you can't make an impact for Christ until Christ is a part of your life. Why was Stephen able to boldly preach this sermon? Because he was full of the Holy Spirit. That's what we see in Acts chapter 6. That was his description when he was chosen as a deacon. And we see it all the way through in Acts chapter 7. All the way through his end, end of his life, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He oozed Jesus. That's the testimony I want to have. The Bible says if you call upon him, he will hear you and he will answer you. That if you believe that Jesus died, rose again the third day, you can be saved. That's the only way to be saved. There's no other way. There's no newfangled way. There's no way to be good enough. None of us are good enough. I think that's an important thing to remember as we end. Stephen wasn't saying, I'm better than you. He was simply saying, the only way is to trust Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word Lord we thank you how good and how gracious you are we thank you that you're slow to anger that you're abounding in mercy we thank you that you did not abandon Saul because he he was consenting to the death of Stephen while he was standing by those coats we thank you that you continued to use him even though he was a murderer even though he had thrown many of your followers in prison Lord You continued to use him. We thank you that he understood that he was nothing without you. We pray that we would have the same understanding. I pray this in Jesus' name.